The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's Friday, March the 31st, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics Wrap of the Week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today are Pat Leahy and Cormac McQuinn from our politics staff. Good afternoon to you both. Hello, Hugh. Afternoon, Hugh. Pat, is this how it ends? Not with a bang, but with a whimper, as T.S. Eliot said. Could that be applied to this week's doll debates on the ending of the eviction ban, or were there any real fireworks in the chamber? Oh, I think it was more than a whimper, to be honest, uh, Hugh. There was pretty testy, often quite personalised exchanges between Sinn Féin uh, and the other opposition parties and the government all week, starting uh, on Tuesday with the Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin table to bill that would uh, had it in the unlikely event of it being passed by the Dáil and Shannad in three days would have prevented the uh, eviction ban from lapsing on Saturday. But uh, obviously that was not likely to happen, but that was the first instalment of it during the week. Then there was the Labour Party's motion of no confidence in the government that was taken and voted on on Wednesday. Wednesday evening was the vote on the Sinn Féin uh, legislation. And yesterday there was a resumption of hostilities between Micheál Martin and Pierce Doherty at leaders' questions at noon in the Dáil. So I'm speaking to you from Leinster House today and it's been pretty hot and heavy here all week, um, to be honest. I suppose the outcome of the votes wasn't really in, in doubt and the opposition knew that. I think what this week was about was about maximising the political damage to the government from any evictions that take place over uh, over the next few weeks. Now, nobody thinks that there's going to be a an immediate tsunami of evictions, but there will undoubtedly be some evictions. You can expect those to be covered widely in the media and on social media. And that just seems to me to be a very bad story for uh, for the government and one to which they will find it very difficult to provide uh, decent answers. Cormac, do you agree? Yeah, this will be the, the key test, you know, in the coming weeks and months, how many people actually lose their homes. And it's, it's telling that it hasn't been terribly clear, even before the government made this decision, how many people would actually end up, you know, homeless as a result of the decision, which is a problem for the government if you can't give that kind of estimate. 
you know, people appointed to residential tenancy board figures showing more than 4,000 uh, notices has quit. Government has been keen to say, oh, well, you know, not all of them will, will end up with evictions. But, you know, it will be very interesting to see how many of these will. You know, even even one story of an eviction where the person tells their story in the media, uh, they've got children, you know, is each one of those is damaging for the government. There are likely to be several in the coming weeks and months. So no tsunami, but but certainly it will happen and uh, it will be damaging the government when it does. Not to be cynical about this, Pat, but, you know, politics is, in, in one level, the art of the art of performance. And so who performed well? Who came out of the performance in the in the chamber this week? Or was it all preordained, as, as you somehow seem to be saying? I mean, I think the outcome was preordained. But, you know, theatre is a part of politics too. And it is you know, increasingly what parties in Sinn Féin are especially good at this is they will, you know, weaponize moments from the doll for distribution on social media. And you will see those things. Obviously, you know, we report soberly and uh, and accurately in, uh, in the Irish Times as soon as we can thereafter and in the following morning's paper. But you know, you will see these things getting huge, uh, you know, getting huge coverage on on social media. And there was one moment, you know, that uh, during the doll, uh, during the debate uh, in the doll during the week, which kind of stood out for me. And it was when Louise O'Reilly addressed Joe O'Brien, who's a Green Junior Minister who shares her constituency. And she spoke about uh, somebody who's a, um, a widow with, I think, four children in her, uh, who was facing evictions. And she repeatedly asked, where is she going to go? You know, she's, you know, she's at risk of losing her home. What do we tell her? Where is she going to go? She's told she has nowhere to go. Where is she going to go? And um, I would be very surprised if that isn't flying around and being shared on social media. And of course, it's not an answer that the government can muster an easy answer to. Now, you know, we live in a, a free market uh, society. You know, people will move on from tenancies. Some people will be uh, evicted. That's in the nature of the property rights that are protected by the Constitution and, you know, I guess supported by, by most people. But at the same time, you can see, you know, the emotional reach of, uh, of something like this. And... I just think this is a it's a very difficult position for uh, for the government uh, to be in. And if I was in the opposition, I would be reasonably happy with how the week played out, you know, in the knowledge that they the vote, they weren't going to defeat the, defeat the government in the votes. But if you accept that, uh, I, I think it's been a good week for the opposition and a bad week for the government. And I think there may be more bad weeks to come. Yeah, we suggested on the podcast last Friday, Cormac, that this could end up this period now leading up to and through the uh, the ending of the eviction ban could be seen as a kind of a hinge point, a pivot point in the history of this coalition government, uh, a sort of perhaps even the start of a, you know, of a downward, a downward track, a downward path. Sure. I mean, unless the government can show real progress over the next two years that it is tackling the housing crisis properly ramping up delivery, they're in real trouble in the next election. And it's it's going to be such an easy issue, uh, the events of the last month or so, for the opposition to point to as a as a turning point or as a, a, a particularly good illustration of a moment that the government 
has failed in its in its attempts to uh, to resolve the housing crisis. It's very easily understood by the public. It'll make great clips for election broadcasts and 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 as Pat says, social media. We can be sure they will be they will be replayed in in two years' time at the time of the general election, uh, particularly if you know the government fails to to make serious uh, headway in terms of solving the housing crisis. So you know it is it it's it's quite possible in years to come it will be seen as a turning point. Uh, there, there was some suggestion during the week it could be could be on par with you know when the when. Finnegal tried to uh, slap extra taxes on children's shoes and things like that. You know, it, it, I don't know if it will have the same, um, you know, resonance in decades to come. But uh, but certainly when the election is here, twenty twenty five, it's 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 easily remembered by the public. Yeah, I saw that comparison being made along with I think going even further back, Ernest Blythe and the and the widow's pension in the in the nineteen twenties was the other one. The, the other point, Pat, is uh, perhaps a less important one, but a point all the same, is that, I mean, you mentioned the Sinn Féin motion and the counter motion, but the actual motion of confidence was tabled by the Labour Party. Its first motion of no confidence in a government in 23 years, I gather. Was that an effective manoeuvre by Labour? How did it play out? Yeah, well, I suppose the first thing to say is that Labour was actually in government for some for some of that period. So even for the Labour Party, it would be unusual to uh, to put down a motion of no confidence in government when you're when you're part of that government. But um, I gather actually one of the reasons that the Labour put down this um, uh, put down the motion of no confidence is that they couldn't. They had thought about the legislative route, which was followed by Sinn Féin, but they couldn't get it on the order paper quickly enough. Now I don't know the ins and outs of that, but that's certainly what somebody in the Labour Party was uh, was telling me. Yesterday, um, you, you know, it was striking during the debate that much of the the government's responses to the attacks on it was to be, you know, just was to reciprocate Sinn Fein's aggression across the chamber with their own aggression. But to the Labour Party, they were almost, you know, speaking in sorrow rather than in anger, and you know, pointing out that, uh, you know, that they they believed that this wasn't the sort of, you know, opposition that they expected from the Labour Party and the Labour Party long and honourable tradition of trying to do the right thing in government, sometimes at political cost to itself, etc., etc., etc. It was that, basically that, a Stephen Collins column, uh, wasn't it? I think, I think they might have been familiar with his work, all right. But um, Heather Humphreys was yeah. a disappointed school teacher, was, was what it appeared to me. I found myself kind of thinking that, uh, you know, if, if, if you were the Labour Party and you wish to... I, you know, establish an identity for yourself in opposition, because this is what I think they have to do, that is very different to Sinn Féin, that is equally opposed to the government, but uh, but but distinct from Sinn Féin. I wouldn't have been too disappointed to hear this uh, at all, you know. And if the, if, if the Labour Party is still held in, uh, in, in some degree of odium by many voters for its participation in government uh, with Fine Gael between 2011 and 2016. And whatever your view about the, uh, the rightness or wrongness of, of that perception uh, may be, it's undoubtedly true for many, uh, for many voters. But, you know, if that, is, if that is the case, then I guess if you're Labour, you're not too disappointed with the government saying, oh, you guys have changed, you're not the Labour Party that we once knew uh, and loved. So I don't think Labour would have been too disappointed uh, with that. And it was constantly referenced as the Labour Party uh, as the Labour Party motion, notwithstanding that the, as is the procedure in these things, it was superseded by an amended motion of confidence in the government, which was put down by the government, which is what the all voted on. But it was pretty heavily branded as the Labour Party's motion of no confidence 
uh, no confidence in it at all. And, um, you know, so I, 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 I think I was slightly sceptical about the kind of clumsy nature of it uh, last week. But at the end of the week, I think, you know, I think it worked out okay for them. And can I just ask you a follow-up on, on that, Pat? Obviously, all parties are looking towards, you know, the the beginning of ramping up for um, next year's jamboree of elections, which we which we have to look forward to, and they're trying to position themselves for that. But are they also maybe just looking a little bit further as well? Because, you know, if, if you look at Labour, the SOC Dems, some of the independents, the role of the Greens, however they come through it, and you look at the likely mathematics of the next doll, um, their support is going to be in play whether it's support for Sinn Féin or for some continuation of the current arrangement. Yeah, but you know what? Like parties tend, they do think about the next election all the time, but they they think a bit less, in many cases, very considerably less about the formation of uh, of of the next government. You know, I mean, I've made the point dozens of times here before that the selection of a government for this country is kind of a two-stage process that are, and those two, those two stages are obviously related, but they're, um, you know, they're distinct as well. And one is the actual election itself, and the other then is the, uh, the period of negotiations between the parties after the election to try and put together a coalition government. And my expectation, to be honest, is that all parties will, you know, 99% of their efforts are, preparing for the election and trying to maximize the number of seats they will have and maybe 1% you know looking forward to the uh, the formation of government afterwards in other words i i don't think that i don't think that labor have been engaged in a self-conscious bout of post-election positioning this week i think they're just trying they're trying to get noticed yeah plenty yeah. of time for that is what you're saying yeah more than enough time for that we are going to take a quick break just to remind you that if you haven't already subscribed to irishtimes.com please do so to read pats and cormics and indeed even sometimes my journalism on irishtimes.com and in the print edition if you are so inclined uh, we'll be right back after this There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. And you're very welcome back, Cormac and Pat are still here. Now, um, Cormac, this Defense Forces issue. It's a terrible scandal. It's appalling. After years, really, of lobbying by by women who had bad experiences in the Defence Forces, the report which came out uh, really shows that things were very far from being the way that they should. And it, a bit of a challenge for the government, or is it is it sort of outside the political sphere? Well, yeah, I mean, it's become a cliche to say that when these things arise, oh, it's, an, it's another dark chapter in, in Ireland's history and all. You know these kinds of that's what's often said, but this one is it's a bit different. You know, it's it's much more recent that these suspected abuses have occurred. You know, um, and up to the present day, I mean, the the report says that you know the as an institution, the defence force is barely tolerant of women at best, which is, you know, 
we're in we're in the the, the third decade of the twenty first century here. You know, it's it, it's 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 well past time that that those sorts of attitudes should should have long since uh, been done away with. Uh, so you know, it, it's it's a it's a problem. This focus has been put in the last couple of days on what the 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 chief of staff uh, General Sean Clancy knows about all of this, and he he's said not very not very much. Essentially, uh, you know, doubt has been cast on that. Uh, by various people, including uh, Senator Tom Clonan, who who talked about how he was he was revealing um, you know the treatment bad treatment of women in the defence forces you know around twenty years ago. So there there are present day questions to be asked about this particular uh, controversy and and scandal to you know effectively is what it is, and uh, that that makes it different from other things of this type that the the government has had to deal mm. with. Moving on, Pat, there is a we're going to be embarking on a. More than a week of festivities, or I'm not sure exactly what they are, of the Belfast Agreement. Myself and Finch and O'Toole were talking about the 25th anniversary in our midweek podcast, um, and I expressed some reservations about... At great and engrossing length, I thought. Yes, indeed. I'm sure you listened to it twice. I expressed a bit of scepticism. I have a kind of... I get a bout of anniversary-itis sometimes. I think we do them a bit too often in Ireland, but Finchon, of course, managed to argue me out of that and pointed out the great significance of this particular date. Are you going to be traipsing around to various official events for the next week or so, culminating in the arrival of President Biden? Yeah, I think I think that's inevitable, uh, I'm afraid. Yeah, look, there is, I, I suppose, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the ceremonials will be dominated by the, 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 pre- the visit of President Biden and we're still waiting on some of the details for exactly what he's going to be getting up, uh, getting up to. I mean, like to me, I, I, I suppose the 25th anniversary is an opportunity to do uh, two things, and uh, you know, I, I I go some way with you on your anniversary uh, itis, uh, and I think it would be useful if we didn't spend all of the time congratulating uh, ourselves. Although many congratulations are due to the architects of the agreement and the people who made it work, the people who took the risks for peace, and you remember the contributions of you know people like Trimble. Obviously, uh, John Hume and people like that, and that is no harm. Um, you know, there's there's no harm in doing that. But I also think it's an opportunity for revisiting the agreement and seeing what bits of it haven't worked or what bits of it are no longer fit for purpose in the changed Northern Ireland that uh, uh, that that we see today. It seems to me that the agreement has been spectacularly successful in its principal objective, which was to, you know, end the violence and therefore change Northern Ireland. But its success has been much more mixed in the application of its provisions in the in the various, uh, in the three strands, most particularly in the first strand on the internal governance of Northern Ireland. And, you know, the uh, the executive is and assembly are currently not sitting. They've been out of commission for nine of the 25 years. And, and you know, there's a real question as to whether that very, and we've talked about this before, as to whether the very binary conception of 
Northern Ireland society as between orange and green that is baked into the agreement is now appropriate in a society uh, which isn't binary anymore, which has, you know, a third minority, which is a, a society of three minorities, that third minority obviously being the neithers, which find some of their political expression, but not exclusively so in uh, in the Alliance Party. And uh, I, I don't know the way around that, and I imagine the mechanics of reforming the agreement would be extremely uh, would be extremely difficult. But that's not a reason, it seems to me, not to uh, attempt them. And I think that there should be at least some recognition given to the need to do that as part of the whole boondoggle that is uh, about to unfold over the coming weeks. Oh, in a sort of a like-for-like uh, cultural exchange swap, uh, Cormac, while Joe Biden is in Belfast, myself and Finton O'Toole are going to be in the Irish Arts Centre in New York uh, discussing great matters of state, <laughs> both, in, uh, both in, in Ireland and in the US. I'm still holding out hope that I might be there at the right time to see Donald Trump do his perp walk uh, to, the, to the courtroom in Manhattan, but the odds seem to be against that right at the moment. It's a big, significant moment for Biden, isn't it? I mean, there, I mean, arguably even more than uh, than JFK, he's somebody who wears his Irishness proudly on his shoulder. So presumably we're going to be deluged with um, American TV crews capturing all this stuff, because in a way you could almost read this as the start of his re-election campaign. Sure. I mean, the, the Irish American electorate is probably not as important to to uh, to getting elected in the States these days as it was in the past. But there is absolutely no doubt in Joe Biden's uh Devotion to the old sod, even if even if uh, the way he talks about it sometimes would raise eyebrows. Talking about how he's one of the the few Irish people that doesn't drink and he doesn't have any relatives in jail there most recently, you know, kind of stuff that we wouldn't necessarily appreciate, but uh, go down well in the the kind of audiences that like Saturday Night Live skits about Irish people that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean there there is his his visit is as much going to be about exploring the roots in Mayo and Loud as 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 uh, the the. The, the sober, important stuff about the, the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. And, you know, I, I covered a little bit of his uh, visit here in 2016 when he was vice president, uh, when he visited Trinity College. And it was, you could tell the giddiness with which he, um, you know, he, he felt upon the visit. I mean, he, in, the, in the, the grand library of Trinity College, he, he kind of came up to the, the assembled journalists and, and said to us, you know, if any of you guys see Harry Potter around here, can you tell my grandchildren? You know, so he he was just he was delighted to be there and uh, very much enjoying the the trip. There's, there's going to be a lot of that over the next couple of weeks. Uh, you know, including I think I think the speculation will do a, a big speech in the West rather than in College Green or anywhere else. Uh, so Ballina is likely to be a a, a, a big centre of 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 this this uh, visit. Yeah, he'll kind of be the political equivalent of the the lovely elderly American tourist who pile off tour buses in Killarney wearing plaid trousers and Kelly Green caps, won't he, Pat? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he he does like a bit of the old tour of Luna. <laughs> As he said, I think I've 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 heard the Joe Biden uh, Irish American speech on on a number of occasions, and I suspect I'm about to hear it. Uh, we're we're going to be deluged with Seamus Heaney quotes. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, but you know, I. I you know, I, I suppose as a cementing of the Irish-American political relationship and going back to talking about the Good Good Friday Agreement, you know, I was in Washington recently for the uh, 
for St. Patrick's Day. And it was amazing, you know, this real palpable sense also in New York, where some of the kind of foreign policy establishment is, uh, is, is located in various think tanks, the extent to which the Good Friday Agreement is seen as a real concrete achievement of American foreign policy over the last 25 years. And um, as, you know, somebody said, uh, when to, to I think it was someone said to Michal Martin at the, um, we met the editorial board of the New, the, the New York Times, you know, you know, there hasn't been all that many glorious episodes of American foreign policy in the last 25 years, but this is, this is one of them. And that is to the, and, you know, that is to the distinct advantage of, uh, of, of this country and of the North. So, uh, you know, as, you know, as, as, as a price for maintaining that American involvement, not just politically, but economically in the South and in, uh, and in the North. And, you know, lots of people talked about a wave of investment from corporate America that was, that could be unlocked if the institutions were put up and running and put on a stable and enduring uh, uh, foothold uh, in the north. So, you know, as a as a price for that, I, I think we can we can all you know put up with a a, a bit of bit of misty eyed greenness from uh, from Uncle Joe. Now, at this time of the week, we always like to pick a few of our favourite articles that have been published over the last week or so on IrishTimes.com. Cormac, what's your choice? Um, I was when when Irish Times columnists go to war. Uh, we we had. Uh, Uma Mullally on uh, Monday, I think it was, uh, talking about how uh, cars have to go. She was raising concerns about air pollution and and noise pollution in Dublin City and and basically advocating for a future where where people wouldn't really have cars. There would be very cheap or or free public transport and uh, streets could be converted into green areas and communal barbecue areas and and things like that. Uh, this prompted a, a response from Senator Michael McDool on Wednesday, you know, which was uh, the, the polar opposite, uh, saying that, you know, car use is not simply the prerogative of the odious and hysterical middle class. And he made, he made the argument that people, you know, they aren't going to take an hour out of their time to bring their children to school on, on train or on buses, you know, and, and people can't afford taxis to go everywhere, which is not actually something Una Mullally was, was advocating either. Uh, but talking about how, you know, the government's own policy envisages a million electric vehicles on the road, so doesn't doesn't that allow for people to have cars? So they both they both kind of uh, argued the extremes of the two positions. As, as usual, these sorts of arguments that the middle ground is probably right. It's a good thing to get rid of a few old cars, but also some people do need them, I suppose, is kind of where, where I came down on it. Yeah, I do like it when our opinion writers have a go at each other from time to time. You wouldn't want it all the time. It shouldn't be over-encouraged, but it is good when it happens from time to time. And this one, uh, I think I'm, I'm kind of with you as kind of halfway between between the two of them, probably more favourable to Una's position. But she did seem to be calling for a kind of Stalinist dictatorship to implement these, which I, uh, you know, as a centrist dad, I, I just can't go along with that. Now, Pat, what was interesting to you? I'm incidentally, before I get to that, I'm more than willing to have a pop at you anytime, and if you suggest it, you know. Uh, but um, the, uh, so that, there's a couple of pieces that um, that caught my eye on the same subject, which were from uh, Mark Paul, who is our London correspondent, but obviously has a a wider remit than that, and he was in Edinburgh for the selection of the new leader of the uh, the SNP, Hamza Youssef, and that election was announced on Monday and on Wednesday then he was voted in as uh, as as first minister and Mark wrote um, an interesting piece which uh, speculated that the uh, you know the 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 real winners uh in in this might be uh the Scottish Labour 
party, um, which is experiencing something of uh, of a resurgence. And what was very evident, I think, from the uh, uh, from the election campaign is the extent to which the SNP. Uh, is now kind of riven by splits and, you know, Hamza Yusuf having delivered, a, you know, the expected victory speech in which he, you know, called for unity and said that he would be, you know, working with the defeated, uh, the defeated candidates to, um, uh, you know, to advance the cause of Scottish independence and um, and the, the unity of the party. He uh, He then promptly... Uh, he promptly demoted his uh, his chief rival, Kate Forbes, whom he had only very narrowly beaten by fifty two percent forty eight in the uh, in the final ballot. So she has declined to serve. She's retreated to the backbenches, and it seems to be the general expectation that you have a period of infighting is uh, is on course for the SNP at a time when it seems to me that the prospects for Scottish independence are retreating. And in this, I think the Scottish Labour Party spots the chance to win back a lot of those seats that it, uh, that it has lost, uh, Westminster seats that it has lost to the SNP when the British general election comes probably next year. And uh, it seems to me that that could have a very strong bearing, not just on politics in Scotland, but on politics in the rest of the uh, of the UK. But Mark did a fine job in his reporting on it. Very much so. My piece is a piece by Mark Hilliard, and Mark was writing about Limerick, the beautiful city by the Shannon, and uh, a bit of a spat it got into with Forbes magazine, well-known financial magazine, well-known for the Forbes 500 or richest people in the world and all that kind of stuff. Forbes published an article a couple of years ago about the Collison brothers, uh, young Irish billionaires who I, I think are originally from kind of your neck of the woods, Pat. They're from Tipperary. They're from Tipperary. They're from yeah, Tipperary, they're from but, Tip- but adjacent to Limerick. And that beautiful city by the Shannon was was described in this article as, I quote, Ireland's murder capital and Stab City. And um, not surprisingly, this this caused an adverse reaction, including from the Collison brothers as well, I think. And the article was swiftly withdrawn. But as part of its, you know, self-flagellation, sackcloth and ashes, Forbes promised to hold a big conference in Limerick. The years have gone by and the conference hasn't happened. And uh, quite rightly, uh, the people of Limerick are up in arms yelling, where's our Forbes conference? And Forbes are going mumble, mumble, mumble. We're still working on it. So it was quite a quite an entertaining piece about cultural stereotypes. I think they, uh, the, the Carlson brothers uh, have always been kind of diplomatic as to whether they're from uh, Tipperary or, or Limerick. I think they lived in Tipperary, but obviously they went to college, went to school in, um, in, in Limerick. And I think one reporter tried to, you know, pin them down and said, look, well, hold on, fellas, you know, who do you shout for when Tip and Limerick are playing in the hurling? And they deflected the question, or whichever one of them was, deflected the question by saying, sure, look, at, as long as someone beats Kilkenny, it's all right, isn't it? So I think maybe a, maybe a future in politics for, for at least one of the Collisons. Maybe. Yeah, on that note, a note I think we can certainly we can certainly all agree on. We will leave it there for, for today. Thanks very much to Pat and to Cormac, to our producer Declan Conlon and our engineer JJ Vernon. Uh, we'll be back with you very soon after the weekend. But until then, goodbye and thank you very much indeed for listening.